Hi there. I'm Susie Hatherley and thanks for joining me for this, the first official episode of our New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation Limited Edition podcast series. A spin on the idea of a masterclass, we're delighted to present to you our Master Key series. I'd like to start by first acknowledging that all of us recording and listening in this virtual space today stand upon the lands of many different nations. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional custodians of these nations. I pay my humble respect to all elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to any Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Now, before we get into today's interview, a little background on our organisation, the New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation. At the New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation, we strive to deliver more keys indoors to provide people in need with a safe place to call home. Our role is to actively grow, rejuvenate and manage the supply of the right types of housing at the right time in the right areas for people in need in our communities. We have the responsibility of managing the largest social housing portfolio in Australia, consisting of around 125,000 properties, collectively valued at over $50 billion. The high demand for social, crisis, transitional and affordable housing continues to outstrip supply. There are currently more than 5,000 households on the priority wait list in New South Wales. To address this challenge, we are actively seeking to access more critically needed funding and are in a constant cycle of innovation to create opportunities, to leverage more bang for our buck. To talk us through this essential and challenging part of our business, our guest this episode is one of our most accomplished and entrepreneurial team members, Emma Nicholson, Director of Funding and Sustainability in Policy and Innovation. Welcome, Emma. Thanks, Susie. What an intro. <laughs> well, well deserved. Well deserved from everything that, uh, that I've heard and that um, we'll look forward to hearing more about today. First of all, can I ask how, how you are and I uh, understand you're joining us from the South Coast today? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm down on Ewan country um, at my parents' place, which is on Chiros Lake near Terlinja, down towards Naruma. Very nice. It'd be great if, uh, if I could start by asking a little about you, if that's all right. What's your career background and what motivates you? My career background, I'd studied journalism out in Bathurst and I first started as a journalist uh, and then I went back to uni and studied industrial relations. I ended up working for government first in a, an industrial tribunal and sort of from there moved into industrial relations policy and employment policy and uh, ended up working on all the equity groups, people with a disability, women, young people. So I ended up sort of in policy roles moving around. I worked on the establishment of the National Disability Insurance Scheme um, and eventually have ended up in Aboriginal housing and now the New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation working on um, the state's asset portfolio for people who need a home. What motivates um, you, would you say? Yeah, look, I'm really motivated by fairness and equity, I guess, in the housing space. Just, you know, so many people need a home, where you live and who you live with and um, what you might think of the home you live in or the place or the street you live in or what others might think of that can make a huge difference to how great you feel on any day or, or, or whether you feel, you know, shame or fear. 
Um, and so I just say, yeah, housing is such an enabler of people being able to live great lives and but also I guess see government investment in education, in the environment, in all those sorts of things be best invested because people will be able to take great advantage of them if, if they're safe and well at home. I'm keen to hear now about your, your current role, your team and the focus of your work. To start, you lead the newly created funding and sustainability team with the policy and innovation division. What is the policy and innovation division firstly and what is your team's remit within it? Yeah, good question. So the policy and innovation division, I guess, has a bunch of teams that are all here trying to say, what have we got at the Land and Housing Corporation? What have we got to work with? What kind of problems do we have? What kind of problems do we need to solve? Uh, Who can we do that with? How can we partner to solve some of those, those problems? And I guess where my team comes in is social housing doesn't pay its way. Uh, the social housing system is really financially unsustainable and the Land and Housing Corporation has some immense financial challenges uh, because we focus on housing people who are very poor. The rents that are collected from those, those people and families is based on their income, so there's sort of a maximum amount of rent we can collect, and yet we have 125,000 homes that need maintenance, uh, that, you know, have things break, we have thousands of people who need a home additionally. So we need to we need to find a way, I guess, in my team to attract more funding to the social housing system and to and to the Land and Housing Corporation. And also to optimize the, the funding that we have, including through partnerships, um, through smarter ways to manage our finances and, and our operations to really make sure that um, for all the people who need a home in New South Wales, we can be working as hard as we can to to try and make sure they have one and that the home that they live in, you know, is is of good quality and, and keeps them safe. Uh, so, yeah, so my job's, my team's job is find money, save money and optimise uh, what we do in the business. For those listening who might not have had exposure to working in policy, can you outline what a typical day looks like? Look, policies is fantastic area of work so I guess a typical day for me always starts with scanning all the news clips it's really important to know who's saying what about stuff that is linked to housing or you know the financial and economic climate Um, it's really important to know you know what peak bodies are doing and saying what the housing market is doing and how people are experiencing that so a really important part of, I guess, the policy craft is always, um, you know, making sure you're across across what the people are saying in the newspapers. I have a whole stack of subscriptions to the Productivity Commission and the Treasury and, um, you know, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare and the, I don't know, the Australian Bureau of Statistics and all those sorts of things. So you're always sort of scanning what are those numbers kind of saying or what are those reports saying or is a report falling due soon? Um, and then look at really at a more practical level, things have shifted a bit during COVID. A huge amount of time and effort last year went into really thinking about, right, what are the conditions of our homes and our portfolio um, and how do we make sure those buildings and those places as well as the people are as safe as can be? My job also just involves a huge amount of kind of 
it actually involves quite a bit of talking through things we think are the issue. Do other people think that's actually the issue? What is the fundamental problem to be solved? And my main, probably, if not every day, almost every day, I'd be talking to a counterpart team at the New South Wales Treasury. A little bit less, I'd be talking to kind of equivalent colleagues in the Department of Communities and Justice and they're the department that generally looks after the people who in our community who either are homeless, imminently homeless, uh, are tenants in social housing or, you know, they also have responsibilities for sort of the, the participants in that, the social housing system, so the community housing sector, for example. Can you tell us a bit more about your team and what values and qualities you look for for the people that you work with? Being a policy person, you're usually thinking about the future, trying to solve things now, but you're really thinking about, well, what do we know? What could change? Um, and so when so people who are good at policy and good in these kinds of teams are people who, um, I guess, are really ambitious for the future and who are really comfortable with ambiguity because no one knows what's really going to happen tomorrow. You've got to be pretty ambitious to saying, oh, I reckon this could change or this could be better. And a lot of people like to talk about, oh, wouldn't it be great if, if this happened? But there's not actually translating that into, well, how do you get there? What kind of, what does change actually look like? For that to happen, who would man- need to make what kind of decision? Somebody actually needs to kind of say yes to that. So how do we give them some information to say yes? And so the people who who work well in teams with me, <laughs> to do that kind of work they're like I said comfortable with ambiguity they're motivated they've got a an element of motivation just you know intrinsic to to kind of how they operate and what they do they're a little bit excitable I think um <laughs> you know and and I think uh there's something in you've got to have a little bit of a little bit of self-confidence balanced with a little bit of doubt because you've you've kind of got to take numbers that everybody else has looked at and you've got to double, triple, check those numbers to make sure it's the right data set and it's the right numbers and you've interpreted them right, the right way. And then you've got to sort of have that little bit of self-confidence that says, and I reckon we could change them. I reckon we could do mm. something about that or that that number, whatever it is, the social housing wait list or housing affordability, that number is unacceptable to me and I'm confident enough to say that. Mm. And and I want to see change. And so, yeah, so I've got a bit of a mix of um, people in my team with economics backgrounds, legal backgrounds, kind of core policy backgrounds, which means they've, they've just got great problem solving and communication skills but have worked on a, a range of portfolio areas, usually in government, but sometimes for other kinds of organisations, social purpose organisations usually. But, yeah, my team's terrific. I'm delighted with them. I'm so proud of them. I'm so grateful for them. As listeners may be aware, New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation is predominantly self-funded. Before we get into how you're innovating to introduce additional revenue streams, can you first explain what being self-funded means in practice and what are some of the challenges in working in that context? Yeah, so for me, I think the easiest way to explain it is normally if you work in a government department, you know, the state budget or the federal budget each year allocates out money for that government department to do its work and, you know, people's taxes go into paying for that department and those people and that work. So Land and Housing Corporation is is a government organisation but it's not a government department. It's called a public trading enterprise. So 
that means our legislation says, you know, we've got to manage our own risks. But essentially what that means is we are self-funded. So we're self-funded and I guess the idea is because social housing tenants pay rent, we receive income as an organisation. But the rent that people pay if they live in social housing is not a lot of money and it certainly doesn't cover the costs of what it costs us to to deliver homes and the services that people who live in our homes get. So we're self-funding because we receive rents. We're also self-funding because we sell homes, usually and ideally uh, poor quality homes uh, or high value homes, but that are in poor condition or that don't represent kind of good future value. If we retain them in our portfolio, we're better off selling them. We sell homes to pay for capital maintenance and other new homes. For time to time, government does fund us, uh, especially, you know, as I've experienced during COVID. And there are some small other ways that we receive what we would say are relatively small grants for particular purposes. So, for example, there's a, an intergovernmental agreement um, where the Commonwealth and the states both contribute funding to social housing um, and also for homelessness. That money predominantly goes to the Department of Communities and Justice. It pathways about $50 or so million dollars a year to us to go and build new homes. $50 million sounds like a lot. We've got 125,000 homes currently in our portfolio value is $50 billion. If you think about mm-hmm. well, what does it cost to buy a home in Sydney, it's about a million dollars at the moment, $50 million. If we bought homes, there's not many homes at all. Luckily, mm-hmm. we use our own land and we try and build homes, so maybe we can get double that uh, for $50 million. But, you know, in the scheme of things, it, it's not a lot. With all of that said, I understand that you and your team have achieved extraordinary success over the last two years via some quite large grants of funds from New South Wales Treasury, including through the government's COVID-19 economic response, the the housing industry support measures. Can you please tell me about those? How much have you been able to secure and how are they being spent? Look, we have been so lucky, I guess, so grateful. We've also worked incredibly hard Um, and so we've been Mm. able to attract, look, the numbers are enormous. Uh, We've probably been able to attract close to about a billion dollars. Wow. I think the official number is something like 866.4 million. We've been provided funding to support the cleaning of buildings. We've been provided funding for more new homes. Uh, We've been provided funding to accelerate projects we were already doing, but, you know, being self-funding, our projects are self-funding. We've been given funding to support some really amazing programs to create jobs in the housing, the housing construction sector through apprenticeships and traineeships, as well as the community housing sector through cadetships. Most recently, uh, we've just had some further funding for small-scale homes that are quick to deliver out in the country. Uh, And we've also just had some funding announced for uh, new and replacement refuges. So the the funding that's come to LAC has has been for a wide range of reasons, but we've been spending that money on new homes, new roofs, new kitchens, things that really make a difference to the the quality of a home, the condition it can be, uh, how long it can operate into the future. But also because of COVID, while 
people might have been reluctant for our tradies to be turning up and working in their homes. We've been doing a huge amount of things that um, probably are less sexy, but, uh, you know, working on sewers and pipes and vegetation management, which has a really great effect of reducing the risk of mould and, uh, you know, water around the property and, and actually goes to a whole batch of sort of tenant health benefits. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, the dollars have been spent in a pretty wide variety of ways across the state um, and have just been, you know, the multipliers on the construction, housing construction and the construction services industry have really been helping, I guess, the, the state's recovery from drought and floods and COVID. Um, so we're incredibly pleased and proud, I guess, to be able to, to help with that. I think, you know, there's upward of 3,000 jobs generated by the investment today. And Are there any stories or scenarios about how our work has assisted people that live in our homes that, that still resonates with you today? be it the uh, most recent funding or anything in the past? Yeah, look, I'm uh, I'm really, I think one of the things I'm just really delighted about is uh, the apprenticeship program funding, which goes to apprentices, yeah. cadets and train, trainees. I think uh, the cadetship program, which is where we've partnered with the Community Housing Industry Association of New South Wales to deliver two things. One is training through the Certificate 4 in Social Housing. Mm-hmm. It's actually just gotten a new name, but essentially that's the qualification and um, the assignment to a community housing provider to to work with that CHP as a cadet the targeting for that program has been uh, trying to you know been trying to attract social housing tenants uh, to get a job and you know work in the sector and uh, 77% of the first year of participants going through that program were unemployed and didn't have a job before joining the program and now they're in work and they've got full-time jobs and I'm just delighted. Um, I guess there's, I think there's something like 210 participants across the apprentices, trainees and cadets. At the moment, we had a target of 300 over four years and we're already at plus 200. So just, you know, getting a job makes, you know, getting a job is everything, right? Having a job is everything. So um, I'm just stoked that uh, the government, was interested in that investment suggestion that we made to them last year. Mm. Yeah, it must be really wonderful to be able to see the benefits of your work like that. Yeah, yeah. and you sort of forget it some days and then you see the numbers again you go, oh, my gosh, we did that. That happened. We did that. It's amazing. Thinking about that and, and all of the ideas that, that you've um, sort of collectively uh, proposed, how did you and the team manage to procure almost $1 billion for New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation? It really is such an achievement when for a long period the organisation didn't receive as much in the budget and there are so many sort of pertinent issues vying for government funding. How do you how do you achieve that? Look, when you say it like that, it sounds, you know, my mind kind of feels like it's exploding. Um, <laughs> To be honest, uh, look on the on the other. There's a couple of ways to explain it, and it's like those bands that are overnight successes. Like actually, there's been a good number of years where yeah. a good number of people have put in long hours to write really long reports about the state of the social housing portfolio, the condition of it, and why it needs investment to improve its condition, the degree of demand, I guess, for social housing and other kinds of housing services the consequences of homelessness. You know, we've had some tremendously thoughtful and energised and 
ambitious colleagues in the Treasury especially who've mm-hmm. been advocates for for investing in, in social housing for many years. Um, they're still our partners there. So, you know, on the one hand it, it reflects deep and long work that probably a few years ago we thought maybe wasn't getting as much attention as it could but mm. all we've done in the business is just keep working on those numbers, working harder on the evidence base. I guess in the, the global financial crisis 10 or so years ago, you know, housing, mm. the housing industry has has lots of multipliers to it and so, you know, when you've you've really got an economic challenge like like the government has had with, with COVID and floods and drought, um, housing is the place to go. So, you know, when when you need a mechanism to get money out into the economy and out into shops and trades, you know, the Land and Housing Corporation basically has housing all over the state and so the infrastructure that we have already in the organisation can really right. assist the government. Right. Um, so, yeah, so we're really proud, proud of it. We've, we've attracted a lot of money but we're also we're working our guts out to make sure we and our contractors are spending it to, I guess, time and budget but also safely. Um, it's really yeah. important with government programs when you're going to invest deeply that, that things get, get done safely and, you know, that's absolutely top of mind as well and um, all of our partners have been doing an incredible job there. You've mentioned a few times uh, in the conversation the importance of relationships. I'd like to talk more about that collaboration. How important are relationships in your day-to-day work and in achieving the outcomes you have? So the relationships are really important. They're important because you need people to spark ideas. They're important so that other people can explain our challenges or our suggestions well. Like you've really got to help other people advocate because not many people are actually ringing me up directly. Okay. <laughs> Somebody's eventually. Occasionally, that happens, and that's 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 lovely. But but mostly, it's you know, it's sort of third hand. You know, our job is to spend time with all those other people who probably talk to their more senior people, so that they can explain the problems, the opportunities, the options, the suggestions really well and really confidently. People can't follow a script; it doesn't work, and we probably don't have time to write one. But, yeah, you've got to spend time educating people about our problems and, and also mm. sounding, you know, being passionate about them because if we're passionate about them, other people will feel good about being passionate about them too. The right okay. thing, they can okay. brief their people and, you know, so there's a real, there's definitely a note. You've got to work really hard on making sure that you're showing adequate respect to other people as well, I guess, about their areas of responsibility and how, you know, they can understand what you're trying to do or you're not trying to cut across them um you know and then you know they're probably getting us to the same three dot points as we are so got to make sure that we're sending up advice that doesn't brief against other agencies but also Mm -hmm. doesn't seem inconsistent you know so you've got to be talking to people you've mentioned as well uh your ambitions for the future and the importance of um ambitiousness in a policy person i'd like to talk now about your your sort of future vision thinking blue sky what are some of the big ideas that you're looking to create to break open revenue streams and, and sort of supercharge our business model, if you will? Look, housing need now affects people across all income levels, housing access the same. So I guess, you know, one of the state outcomes for the sort of government cluster that we're in is about maximising community benefit from government land and property. So, you know, absolutely my focus is on social housing and that segment. I see 
a huge role in the land that the Land and Housing Corporation has, which is the second largest asset holding of the government after roads and transport. I see a huge role for our portfolio in, in helping all kinds of households to have a home, especially in the affordable rental and long-term market rental space. Lots of people rent in the private rental market, um, but, you know, do so quite insecurely. Um, And I guess I'd really love to see build-to-rent housing, you know, be a much bigger part of our story into the future and for more kinds of families. Yeah, really exciting and innovative. Is there a role for federal government uh, in assisting the states to meet the demand for social housing? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Look, the federal government currently, its most distinct roles, I guess, are described in the National Housing and Homelessness Agreement um, and the Commonwealth Government, you know, props to them for this, uh, you know, established the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation a couple of years ago. NIFIC is making an incredible difference to the sector. Uh, I think there's a really important an important thing to consider, which is that the federal government usually has responsibility for older people and in the health system and in the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the, the federal government is responsible for older people and their costs. I'd really like to see the federal government into the future play a, a bigger role in how the housing needs of older people are addressed, how they're funded, how we make sure, you know, we've got fifty to 60,000 older people living in our lack homes. Um, most of them are living alone. So I guess I'd really like to see, you know, some, some really hard work done around how we support those people to age in place well. Can you take us through a scenario or recall a story of a, of a person in your career, um, whether it's at Land and Housing Corporation or at the Aboriginal Housing Office, where you've really seen an impact individually? Oh, look, there's a few. I'm generally not frontline. I work in an office. Mm. Um, on you know strategic things so so yeah being out of in the field and getting to go along with people who work in the field is always a real privilege um maybe the most recent example I had though was just during COVID just you know I was up in Sydney and um it was a Friday morning and I went to meet a friend to go for a walk and get a coffee and we were going to meet you know on a street corner by a park and um, while I was waiting for my friend, I saw this boy who was sort of wearing high-vis, high-vis jumper, looked pretty grubby, pretty young. So I just thought, oh, that looks a bit out of, he looks a bit out of place here in this dog park in inner, you know, inner Sydney um, where everyone's sort of, you know, holding cups of coffee and, and walking their dogs. So I went over and I just said, oh, hey, how's it going? And he was like, oh, you know, I'm all right. And I said, my name's Emma, what's yours? And anyway, we got to have a chat and I said, where'd you stay last night? And he said, oh, I slept here. And I said, yeah, it looks it looks like it actually. And mm-hmm. he said, yeah. And I said, oh, um, I said, do you know that actually you could stay in a hotel at night rather than be in the park? And he was like, yeah, I have heard about that because there's a service called Link to Home and anyone in New South Wales on any night can call the Link to Home number and um the government or one of our partners will, will assist you to, to, to find somewhere to stay and the government will pay pay for that. And usually seven days accommodation is provided, but during COVID it's, it's been a month at a time. So I said, yeah, you've heard of that? And he said, yeah, yeah, I have. But he said, my 
my phone doesn't have any batteries in it, so I haven't been able to call them. Okay. And I said, oh, okay. And I said two things. One is I said, hey, Telstra has just made it so payphones are free. So in the future, Mm -hmm. you can Mm -hmm. use a payphone. And he was like, really? I said, yeah, it's just happened. So, you know, that was was important news to share. And I said, well, do you want to use my phone? Why don't we call Link to Home? Mm -hmm. um, You know, three hours later, you know, he was able to get on the train and go into town and um, have accommodation for the week. So there's some things about just how do you navigate the system? How do you help someone who doesn't have any phone battery today? Yes. (laughs) You know, just knowing that how the housing system works and it's there it's genuinely there to help but there's all these other practical reasons why people can't easily get there and I ended up texting his mum and saying oh wow you haven't spoken to your son for a bit but I ran into him in the park today and just want you to know that he was you know he was doing all right and um this is where he's going to be for the next week and he said to tell you that he's okay um so just some real basics Mm -hmm. this stuff is solvable with money and it's solvable Mm -hmm. with effort so Mm -hmm. I think that's that's the main thing yeah, that that's a really powerful story to finish on. Just before we close, is there anything burning that you really wanted to share today that hasn't come up? On the one hand, we've got all these fantastic partners who we already work with, and on the other, there's this there's this long list of organisations and types of investors and types of capital who are interested in investing to solve social problems to support social outcomes, to support environmental and sustainability outcomes. And, you know, there's some real opportunities for for us to grow the range of people and organisations we partner with for that purpose. Uh, And I really hope that's part of, you know, lacks near-term future um, because everyone's interested in housing, everyone needs a home, um, and to build many, many, many more homes, it's going to take quite a lot of money. So. The more people who want to chip in, the better. Well, thank you, Emma. That has been really interesting and informative. We appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge and insights today. I'm sure I speak for everyone listening when I say you've provided some invaluable learnings about your work and its successes and challenges that we can apply in our own work. And that ends our interview with Emma Nicholson, Director of Funding and Sustainability here at the New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation. I'm Susie Hatherley, and thank you for joining me for this first episode of our new Master Key podcast series. If you have any questions for Emma or about this podcast, please email lahccommunications at facs.nsw.gov.au.